0: All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with goodranchers.com. That's right. If you go on to GoodRanchers and you use promo code NIC and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breasts, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free to get that deal and let's get on with the show we're down in richmond for the 2022 virginia legislative session and this episode i'm going to talk about some of the key bills i will be carrying all that and more coming up on this episode of making the argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society okay so the beginning of session is always an exciting time especially when you've had an election in between, and obviously a lot went on in Virginia in the last election cycle. We have a Republican governor for the first time in a long time. We have a Republican attorney general, a Republican lieutenant lieutenant governor, and a Republican House of Delegates. The Democrats still control the Senate by one vote, but the change in the House of Delegates was significant, and we think we have an opportunity to be able to get some good legislation through, and then it will be a question of whether or not we can get it through the Senate. Right now, keeping all this in mind, The way I design my legislative package each year is based off of a couple of things. One, it's based off of how do we defend individual liberty and the way I see to do that is by protecting property rights, by protecting essential civil liberties, by making it easier to get a job, run your business, et cetera. That means lowering taxes, lowering regulations. These are the general things that I always use when I take into putting together the bills I'm going to carry. However, when you've had two years of a Democrat-controlled legislature and governor's mansion, you end up having a lot of laws that go into place that the only way you can get rid of them is with a bill. So I've had, I'm have had i going to be submitting a lot of bills to essentially repeal things that happened over the last two years. Now, one of those things, right off the bat, that I want to talk about was the Virginia Clean Energy Act. Now, the Democrat argument for all this is essentially say that climate change is an existential threat to the country, It's something that we have to deal with right now if we ever want to have a prayer of being able to solve it. And so passing things like the Virginia Clean Energy Act, which essentially tied Virginia emission standards to California. It required uh, so much in solar energy, so much in wind energy. It had a moratorium on on fossil fuels at a certain date within Virginia, all those things, right? It It was very wide sweeping. It was one of the most Widely sweeping quote-unquote, clean energy bills to pass in the country, all right? So Virginia went from a place that was was pretty, you know, middle-of-the-road or relatively conservative with respect to our energy policy, all right? It was kind of like all hands on deck to, nope, we're going to be California. We did that, like, almost overnight. So here was some of the fine print that was in that bill that the media didn't really talk about and that the Democrats certainly didn't talk about when they passed it, and that was the average household energy bill was going to increase by about $800 a month, Right, yeah, they didn't advertise that part, but that's the reality. And now that we're going into a pretty cold winter, we've already seen a lot of snow drop in Virginia, $800 in addition, that, that was $800 just on average. But then when you have an increasingly cold winter, that price tag goes up, All right, But there's more, right? Because some people, the left, some people on the left will come in and say, well, this is just the price of saving the planet, right? You'd spend $800 a year if it meant saving your, your house or saving your world, so then why can't you do it? Here is the interesting part. When they were talking about all these solar projects, this wasn't something where they were going to take solar panels and just you know, put them on more buildings or more schools or more government property in order to increase the amount of solar that we got within the system. This wasn't something where they were simply going to incentivize you to put up individual solar panels. No, they they created a system where literally we had to clear cut thousands of acres of forest, we had to rip up farmland, in order to put in industrial solar fields, right? They call them solar farms. They're not farms, they're industrial solar fields. And they did this initially with with so much speed and so much haste that what was happening was the government was giving a ton of money to companies that would essentially come in, convince a farmer to rip up their, their property, rip up their crops, put in solar panels. And initially they didn't even have proper bonding. It's not like they had proper research with respect to what was going to happen to the soil long term, what the longevity was of the particular solar fields they were putting up. I mean, there was all kinds of problems with this. So the same people, the same people on the left that were driving around with bumper stickers that say farmland lost is lost forever, were also the ones saying, yeah, rip it up and put in a bunch of solar fields. So there was a lot of environmental problems with this as well. So here's what I would say to people on the left right? Because Blue Virginia has already come out and said that I have a pro-global warming bill, which, first of all, I'm a little bit shocked they keep saying global warming. I thought they got the memo that it's, it's climate change now because it's easy to prove that the climate changes. All right. But they said this is a pro-glo- pro-global warming bill. I want everyone to understand where I'm coming from when it comes to green energy. The reason I'm getting rid of the Virginia Clean Energy Act or something essentially going to make the attempt at it is because it was horrible policy and it wasn't just horrible policy for ratepayers when it comes to actually trying to heat your house in the winter time right it wasn't just horrible policy from from that basic economic standpoint it was horrible policy in my opinion from a green energy side and look i support you know solar technology i support you know renewable technology i think all of that is incredibly interesting i think you look at some of the things that the private sector is doing right now with solar power and it's it's very very intriguing however If the only way that you can get to where you wanna go is by destroying thousands of acres of forest and farmland, I'm gonna say that maybe there might be something a little bit off with your environmental friendly energy plan. Not to mention the fact, and I've gone over this before, but when the government gets in the business of deciding winners and losers within the energy industry, what ends up happening is politicians end up giving billions of your tax dollars, to companies that inevitably support their political campaigns. So you create this perverse incentive now where instead of green energy developing along market lines based off of what customers are actually demanding, it's developing based off of what politicians dictate. And those politicians have motivations which go beyond just saving the planet, right? So the whole idea of getting rid of the Virginia Clean Energy Act is not because we're against clean energy. It's not because we're against renewables. We're not against any of that. It's about saying that this was a badly conceived bill that was based more off of making headlines than it was about actually understanding how it would affect our environment here in Virginia, which, by the way, agriculture is our number one industry in Virginia. You're going to rip up all kinds of farmland. And then on top of that, creating perverse incentives, which have actually pervert the way that green energy develops. right, the way the green energy is going to be successful is by allowing it to compete within the marketplace and find those niches where it's going to be the most effective. Because when they're they're focusing their time, effort, and research and development into the products that customers actually want, it allows them to come up with new technology. It allows them to adapt things and actually to, to be effective within the marketplace. And then it also allows them to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And then they expand that because they're constantly having to develop to meet consumer demand, not to get subsidies from the government that can simply hand out other people's money without any real consideration long term for whether or not this is the best course of action. Right? So that is why I'm carrying the bill to repeal the Virginia Clean Energy Act. It was bad on a number of levels. Again, I'm not anti-clean energy. I just think that it has to develop within the marketplace if we want it to be sustainable long term and we want it to be the most effective. And I'll just give you one more example before I move on to my next bill. I want you to imagine if the government said, you know what, it, it's really important that everyone be able to effectively communicate, and so therefore the government is gonna essentially take over and, and um, you know, heavily subsidize and heavily direct, right? not just subsidize, but direct cell phone communications. right? It's gonna determine what your, your smartphone looks like, what apps it can carry, um, you know, what sort of materials need to be used, what sort of technology needs to be present. Do you think we would've actually winded up with a better smartphone with that sort of government approach as opposed to an approach which had a lot more free market interaction and people able to compete with one another in order to produce the best product possible. I think the free market does a better job, you know, 99 times out of 100 for any sort of issue or challenge that we're trying to face. I think we'll do a better job too with green energy. But the only way we can do that is we have to allow it to be able to develop. We can't try to micromanage and control it from the government. All right. So that's repeal the Virginia Clean Energy Act. All right, another bill I want to talk about, um, constitutional carry. All right, so what constitutional carry is, it essentially says that in Virginia, we have Article 1, Section 13 of the Constitution. That's like our Second Amendment in the federal constitution. And what we're essentially trying to say is, look, in Virginia, we already have open carry laws, which means that if you are legally permitted to purchase a firearm, then you're legally permitted to be able to carry that firearm, unless you want to carry it discreetly. All right, so hear me out. If you want to go buy a firearm and you pass all your, your background checks and everything else, you buy a firearm and you want to carry it on your hip, you may do so. But the moment you say, you know what? I want to be a little bit more discreet about this. Um, you know, I, I want to put my jacket over my firearm as I'm, as I'm carrying it. Well, now all of a sudden, if you didn't go through a, you know, a, a permitting process that can cost you money, that can take up to 45 days, that doesn't really do, it's, it's not like it does a bunch of additional training or anything like that. Well, now all of a sudden you've broken the law. Now, the Democrat solution to this is to say, oh, well, great, yeah, the solution is we shouldn't have open carry either. And this is the part that gets problematic, because now what you're essentially saying is you're infringing on that right to be able to bear arms. And the whole purpose of being able to carry that firearm or to own that firearm is so that you can protect yourself, not just when you're on your property, but you can protect yourself in other areas as well, because it turns out bad things happen in other places. And you having the ability to be able to protect yourself is very important. So the Democrat solution is, well, no, it's not that we need you to be able to conceal carry automatically, it's that we need to take away your ability to open carry. So I I don't think that's a good idea. They've also suggested things like, well, there should be a test before you can carry. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you want a test before someone can exercise an essential civil liberty. Okay, I remember when the Democratic Party did this with things like, oh, I don't know, voting. And what ended up happening is that it was used for very, very racist intentions. And essentially what it did is it created this hodgepodge where certain localities or certain jurisdictions would allow you to carry and other jurisdictions would not allow you to carry. And it's not only as if they were you know, testing you evenly across the board and in a very objective sense. It was more of it gave uh, local government authorities the ability to discriminate against you, right? Not just based off of the test, but to discriminate you based off of you know, maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe immutable characteristics, while at the same time giving the appearance that this was just for public safety. So I'm not willing to give the government that power. You, have, if you can legally purchase a firearm, you should be able to legally carry a firearm, and if, you should be, and if you can legally carry a firearm, you should be able to legally conceal, carry a firearm, because really, that's just about carrying it discreetly. right? and, and the bottom line is, and, and look, I'm, I can't believe I'm pulling this card, but I'm going to, by having this sort of rule in place where you gotta go through this additional you know, permitting process, statistically speaking, you're actually discriminating more against women who would like to carry. Because statistically speaking, women are less likely to open carry than they are to conceal carry. And so if you're going to say, hey, look, you can open carry your firearm, but if you conceal carry, you got to go through this you know, arduous process. Well, then you're, you're actually discouraging the number of people that will carry, but you're specifically discouraging the number of women that would want to carry. Right. And so it's just another reason why it doesn't make sense. If someone can open, if someone should, can own a firearm, they should be able to carry a firearm. If they can carry a firearm openly, they should be able to carry it discreetly. And so that's why I'm carrying constitutional carry, uh, which essentially says that the second amendment, article one, section 13 of the Virginia constitution is your concealed carry permit. All right, let's go into the next bill I'm going to be carrying. I'm going to be carrying the born alive act. All right, there's actually a, a couple uh, bills on abortion that I, I might end up carrying, but I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to carry the Born Alive Act. I've carried this one before, and what it essentially says is that when a child is born, um, despite a botched abortion, that the doctor has to render medical care in order to save that child. Now, some of you might be saying, "You know, Nick, does this really happen a whole lot? No, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And for, I, there's a lot of people in the abortion industry that are very, very, oh, let's just say embarrassed by the fact that people like Gianna Jessen and Melissa Oden survived the abortions that they went through and are now out there and they're, they're pro-life uh, advocates. But we have cases where a child will be born as a result of a botched abortion. And had it not been for a nurse or somebody working in a facility and saving that child, they would have been left to die. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, I would encourage you to go back and look at what Governor Ralph Northam, who is a uh, pediatric, uh, uh, pediatric surgeon, what he said in a live interview. In a live news interview, he said, well, here's what would happen. The child would be born, the child would be made comfortable, and the conversation would ensue on whether or not you were going to essentially attempt to save the child. Now the left comes in and says he's only talking about you know crazy fetal abnormalities, or he's only creating talking about a situation where it's incredibly you know unlikely that the child would survive. Okay, let's say he is. Let me be very, very clear to my left-wing audience. I don't care. The moment a child is born, all right, because Planned Parenthood screwed up the abortion, you work to save that child's life. You work to try to reverse the handiwork that you already did trying to kill that child. And if you've got a problem with that, I'm sorry. Don't ever try to moralize to me again about anything. So what the Born Alive Act seeks to do is make it very, very clear that when a child is born as a result of a botched abortion, et cetera, it is the obligation of that doctor to do everything they can to try to save the child's life. I, I think that's fairly simple. Now, again, you're going to get all these arguments from the left that this is only for extreme circumstances, this is only for extreme circumstances when the child might be in incredible pain, et cetera. Look, I'm sorry, there are ways that you can do pain management at the same time that you're trying to save a child's life. What this really comes down to is the left is adamant about not even touching anything near the issue of abortion, which is why I might be carrying some other bills as well. Because again, this bill doesn't go anywhere near far enough, but it should be obvious. But the last time I carried this bill... It didn't even get a hearing in committee when Democrats were, were in control. Didn't even get a hearing in committee. And this, this was within the same time period where Governor Northam had described in lurid detail how something like this might happen and why a bill like this might be necessary. All right, so just wanted to, to get to that. So we've got clean energy, we've got um, you know, constitutional carry, we've got you know, pro-life uh, bills, Another one that I want to talk about that I think is really important, and I'm actually working with a colleague of mine, and my colleague might actually carry this bill. I've carried it before. I've had it drafted. But the bottom line is I think I think my, my colleague is in a very, very um, strong position to be able to talk about this because it's something that's affected him personally. And that has to do with medical licensure reciprocity. Now, before you go to sleep on me, let me explain what this actually is. Right now, if someone is a fully qualified medical doctor, nurse practitioner, you know, registered nurse, LPN, et cetera. That doesn't mean that they can automatically practice within Virginia. So if they got their license in a different state, that doesn't mean they can automatically practice in Virginia. They might have to go through additional requirements, additional fees, licensing, et cetera, right? It's not just automatically assume that they'll be able to practice in Virginia. Now, the argument that's used, right, by the left and by some people within the medical profession is, well, this is necessary in order to get continuity with respect to our standards, and that sounds fine until you have something like a pandemic, and then all of a sudden you realize that the shortages that you already had within medical care in Virginia, right? The the shortages that were already there and were already a problem are greatly exacerbated by a pandemic. And then what did the left do? They suspended a lot of those rules. They made it easier for people to be able to practice in Virginia because ultimately there's, there's fairly good standards across the entire country with respect to what it takes to become a doctor, a nurse, et cetera. And so the reason why a lot of these regulations exist, right, what they claim the reason is is because this is protecting public safety and it's providing continuity with respect to rules and regulations. Okay, fine. But the cost of that is you have fewer people able to practice in Virginia, right? This is one of the biggest things. Focus on this real quick. If you don't remember anything else I said during this podcast, remember this. The government doesn't deal in, quote, solutions. It deals in trade-offs. There is a cost-benefit analysis to everything that we do. And what is so fascinating is that the moment there was a pandemic, okay, it was the same people that supported all these regulations that immediately came in and said, the cost-benefit analysis doesn't, doesn't play out during this pandemic. We have to have more access to medical professionals. And so we're going we're to temporarily suspend these rules and regulations. So my question is, is well, wait a second. Now, obviously, we understand during a pandemic there's, there's more of a require for medical personnel, but I want you to explain to me why the benefit of having these regulations in place permanently outweighs the cost of shortages as the pandemic goes on or even as it ends. Why? And, and this goes into one of the larger arguments that I've made about this idea that whenever the government is now ostensibly controlling how many people can participate in a particular activity, the government is creating shortages. Now, you might argue that in certain realms, that's appropriate, that the rules and regulations that you need to abide by in order to participate in that activity outweighs the cost of the shortages. Fine, make that argument. But I think what we've seen through this is that we have unnecessary regulations, we have excessive regulations, which is affecting the supply of healthcare. And the people that are imposing those regulations are the same ones saying, we have a crisis with respect to access to affordable healthcare. So here's my question, which is it? Because if you're over here deliberately restricting supply at the same time that you're complaining about a lack of supply and at the same time that you're offering yourself as the solution, which is a government takeover of healthcare, I'm gonna be a little bit skeptical. Because it looks a lot to me like you're actually creating the problem that you're trying to address. As if you've already worked out in your own mind that there's an end solution, there's an end state, and that end state is the government controlling healthcare. And now you're helping to create artificially create conditions to put people in a situation where they have to go to you. And I, I want everyone to understand how dangerous that is. I want you to understand how dangerous it is for the government to essentially be the one controlling your ability to get healthcare. Now, again, their argument is gonna be, well, no, we're not controlling your healthcare. We're, just, we're giving access to people that don't currently have access. There's a thousand different ways that you can help give access and affordability and quality to people without running it. But if the only solution that you're willing to accept is running it, I am now skeptical of all of the other things that you're attempting to do in order to help, right? So I'm gonna work with my colleague on this. We wanna get this bill through, which essentially says that, look, If you're licensed to practice medicine anywhere in the United States, you can practice here in Virginia. We want to make it as easy as possible for qualified people to be able to get in Virginia and be able to provide health care. There's some other things that we're looking at along those lines as well. We'll see what happens this session. It might be a next session, Bill. But part of the problem that we have right now, too, is a scope of practice issue. We've dealt with some of this with nurse practitioners where we allow qualified nurse practitioners to provide other types of care. And it was amazing. The moment we said, well, you know, wait, look, a nurse practitioner, okay, maybe 30 years ago, a nurse practitioner wouldn't have had the training or access to the information through the internet or whatnot in order to do certain things or diagnose certain problems. But now they do, and we want them to be able to do it because it's it's going to create more access and affordability. Doctors immediately came in and said, no, 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 they can't be allowed to do that. We had to go to this in order to do that. So you see what's going on there? All right. You can claim all day long that it's a public safety issue, but you start to wonder, Is okay, is this public safety or is this about a, a particular interest protecting its market share from someone that is now capable of competing with them, right? And that's what, we want. that's what we want to fight against, is that sort of using the government in order to control and protect your market share as opposed to allowing for greater access to healthcare when people desperately need it. All right, so those are, those are four categories that I'm going over. There's a lot of other bills. We're gonna be looking at some stuff with the B poll tax, um, which I want to get into this episode, but we'll definitely be talking about during session. Here's the thing that I want to encourage you to do. If you listen to this podcast and you want more information about what's going to be going on, obviously, we're going to be doing podcasts throughout session where we'll be giving people updates and talking about other things that are going on nationwide, worldwide, et cetera. But if you want specific updates about what's going on in session, I'm going to encourage you to go find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter, like and follow on there because I'm gonna be doing regular Facebook updates, regular Twitter updates. So if you wanna learn what's going on during this legislative session in Richmond, as it's happening, that's gonna be one of the best ways to do it. So go find us on Twitter, go find us on Getter, go find us on Facebook. Look, if there's a social media platform, we're on it. Really all you gotta do is go onto that platform, look for Nick Freitas, we're on there. We didn't come up with some sort of weird name. Just look for my name, you'll find us on there. Follow and like on there, and you will be able to get regular updates about what is going on, not just what the news is reporting, But behind the scenes, what's actually going on? What are some of the mechanics behind this? You know, What are some of the arguments uh, that are being made in, in committee meetings that you might never hear about? We're going to be providing you all that information and empowering you to be able to reach out to your legislator, to be able to reach out through Legislative Information Services to find out what's going on so that you can be an effective advocate for the bills that are most important to you. Once again, I'm Nick Freitas about to go into the 2022 Virginia legislative session. We're looking forward to the inauguration of Governor Glenn Youngkin, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, and Attorney General Jason Mieras, as well as the elevation of Todd Gilbert to Speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates. We're excited about all of this. Continue to follow us on the podcast, follow us on social media so we can give you the blow-by-blow for the entire legislative session. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.